Part One of Chapter Twenty Five of the Golden Calf by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. My seed was youth, my crop was endless care. Mr. and Mrs. Jardine went back to their Wiltshire parsonage after a two days visit, and Ida had her boy all to herself. His education, from a classical and mathematical point of view, had only begun when he went to John Jardine, but the foundations of education, the development of thought and imagination, had begun long ago at La Fontaine, when Ida and he took their long wintry rambles together, and the girl talked to the child of all things in heaven and earth, imparting in the easiest way much of that information which she had acquired as pupil and teacher in the educational mill at Malvera. Beyond learning to read and to write, and the most elementary forms of arithmetic, this oral instruction was all the education which Vernie had received up to the time of his leaving home. But then what a large range of information can be imparted by an intelligent woman who reads a great deal, and who reads with a student's deep love of knowledge. Vernon, without being a prodigy, like the infant Goth, or that wondrous product of paternal scholarship, John Stuart Mill, knew more about things in general, from the course of the planets to the constitution of the glow-rooms in the hedges, than many full-grown undergraduates. Flowers and ferns, shells and minerals, had been his playthings. His sister had taught him the nature and attributes of all the animals and birds he loved, or slaughtered, and then his imagination had been fed upon Shakespeare and Scott, Dickens and Goldsmith. He had derived his first vivid impressions of history from Shakespeare and Scott, his knowledge of a wide range of life outside his own home from Dickens, and with that knowledge a quickened sympathy with the joys and sorrows of the humbler classes. All that Vernon knew of the struggles of the lower middle classes was derived from that great panorama of life which Charles Dickens painted for us. His own small experiences of village life had taught the boy very little, for he had only seen the rustic from that outside and smoothly varnished aspect which the tiller of the soil presents to the squire. And now the boy had come home, after an absence of some months, and he wanted to absorb Ida from morning till night. She must walk and drive with him, read to him, play with him, be interested in his dogs, his guns, his fishing tackle, every detail of his busy young life. Ida was never happier than when thus occupied. The boy seemed to her the incarnate spirit of youth, and joy, and hope, and all those bright impulses which wear out in ourselves at so early a stage in our life's journey that we are very glad to taste them vicariously in the unspoiled ardor of childhood. To be with Vernon was to escape from the narrowness of her own fettered life, to forget its disappointments, its disillusions, its one deep, incurable regret regret for her own mad folly, which had bartered freedom for a sordid hope, folly as mad as Esau's when he sold his birthright, regret for him who loved her too late. Unhappily, even her unselfish delight in her brother's society was not unalloyed with pain. She never forgot her duty as a wife, nor failed in any act of attention to her husband. And yet Brian's morbid jealousy of the boy was but too evident. 
He rarely spoke of Vernon without a sneer, when he and his wife were alone, although he was careful not to say anything uncivil before Lady Palliser. He scoffed at the little lad's position, as if it had been an offence in the child himself, called him the microscopic baronet. The baby Thane laughed with bitterest laughter at any little touch of arrogance which clouded the natural sweetness of the boy's character. Ida endured this morbid jealousy with a patience that was almost heroic. She saw that her husband was ill, and that this mysterious malady of his, which had at first seemed to her sheer hypochondriasis, was only too real. It was a malady which affected the mind more than the body. Brian's character had undergone a complete change since his illness. He, who had been of old so easy-tempered, so lively, was now so melancholy and irritable, at times garrulous to a degree that was painful to his hearers, keenly resentful of trifles, always fancying himself neglected or slighted. In vain did Lady Palliser and Ida urge the necessity of medical advice. Brian obstinately refused to see the local apothecary, and, as there was nothing tangible in his illness and he was able to be about all day, to go out of doors and do pretty much as he pleased, there was no excuse for calling in the doctor without his permission. "'If I felt I wanted advice, I would go up to town and see Mallison,' he said. "'But there is nothing amiss with me except a disappointed life. I begin to feel that I am a failure.' Other fellows of my age have passed me in the race, and it is hard at nine-and-twenty to feel oneself beaten. But, Brian, his wife answered gently, don't you think if your contemporaries have outstripped you it is because they have tried harder than you? Remember what St. Paul says about the one who obtaineth the prize. For heaven's sake, don't preach, cried Brian irritably. I tell you I tried hard enough. Tried, yes, slave night after night, scribbling articles for those infernal magazines, to get my manuscript returned with thanks after nearly a twelve-month detention, spelling over dry as dust briefs for a guinea fee, in order to post up some bloated queen's counsel who treated me as if I were dirt and pretended not to know my name. I tell you, Ida, the bar is a sickening profession. Literature is worse. All the professions are played out. Europe is overcrowded with educated men. They swarm like aphids in a hot summer. Your single fly, the progenitor of a quintillion of living creatures. When I see the men in their wigs and gowns hurrying up and down the temple courts, swarming on all the staircases, choking up the doors of the law courts, they remind me of the busy, hungry creatures on an ant heap. Every door is barred with gold and opens but to golden keys. Every gate is thronged with suitors. All the markets overflow. He was walking up and down the room in an agitated way, angry, excited beyond the occasion. But in your case, Brian, it seems to me that the path has been made so smooth. With such an independence as ours, it must be so easy to get on. I thank you for reminding me how much I owe your father, sneered her husband. I was not thinking especially of my father. You owe as much to your cousin. Yes, my cousin has been vastly generous, damnably generous. But if I had married any other woman, do you suppose he would have done as much? Of course, I know it was for your sake he gave me that income. Was he ever so liberal before, do you think? No, 
He dribbled out an occasional hundred or two when I was up a tree, but nothing more. It was for your sake his purse strings relaxed. You have no right to say that, Ida answered indignantly. I have a right to say what I think to my wife. I have not forgotten what you said to me at the hotel that day. You told me to my face that you loved another man. Do you think I was such a dullard as to not guess that man's name? You fell in love with Wendover of the Abbey before you saw him, and your innocent love for the shadow grew into guilty love for the man after you were my wife. I knew all about it, but I was not going to let you give me the slip. I have known all along that I am nothing to you, that you despise me, detest me, perhaps, and that knowledge has made me what I am, a broken, blighted man, a wreck at nine-and-twenty. Oh, Brian, this is too cruel. Have I ever failed in my duty to you? Damn duty, cried Brian savagely. I wanted your love, not your duty. Love such as I thought you gave me in those autumn days by the river. Great God, how happy I was in those days. I hadn't a sixpence. I was up to my eyes in debt. But I thought you loved me, and that we were going to be happy in our garret till good fortune tumbled down the chimney. I don't think a garret would have suited you long, Brian, had I ever been so devoted. You are too much of a cyberite. I should have been happy with you. I should have thought myself in Eden. Well, fate never meant me to be happy. I am a wretch, judged before I was born, foredoomed to misery in this world and the next. Yes, I begin to think Calvin was right. There are some creatures predestined to damnation. Before ever the stars spun into their places, when all the suns and moons and planets were rings of fiery gas revolving in space, my doom was already written in the book of fate. It had been a common thing of late for Brian to ramble on in such despondent strains as these, half angry, half despairing. Ida was supremely patient with him, sometimes soothing him, sometimes arguing with him, yet hardly knowing how much of his talk arose from real gloom of the mind, or how much was sheer rodomontade. The hours which she spent with him were intensely painful and as the days went by he became more and more exacting, more and more resentful of her absence and grudgingly jealous of Vernon. Another cause for pain was Ida's growing conviction that her husband's frequent doses of soda and brandy, and the champagne which he drank at dinner, and the port or burgundy which he took after dinner, had a great deal to do with his altered mental condition. Painful as it was to speak of such a thing, she took courage one morning, and told him plainly that she believed he was suffering from the effect of habitual, almost unconscious, intemperance. "'You are taking soda and brandy all day long. You have brandy in your bedroom at night, Brian,' she said. "'I am sure you can have no idea how much you take in the course of the twenty-four hours.' "'I have no idea that I am a drunkard, if that's what you mean,' he answered, white with rage and then he burst into a torrent of abuse, such language as she had never heard from mortal lips until that hour, and his wife fled, shuddering and terror-stricken, from the room. When next they met he cowered before her with a craven air, and made no allusion to this scene, but after this she observed that he pretended to drink less, and had a crafty way of getting his glass refilled at dinner. 
he no longer kept a brandy bottle on the table beside his bed as he had done heretofore on the pretense that a little weak brandy and water helped him to sleep nor did the soda-water bottles and spirit decanter adorn one of the tables in his study but more than once his wife met him creeping into the dining-room with a stealthy air to supply himself at the sideboard and when she went into his room at night to see if he slept his fevered breath reeked of brandy it seemed to her later as time went on that even his garments exhaled spiritous odours it was not long after this that he began to talk mysteriously of some trouble which menaced him which gradually took the shape of a criminal prosecution overhanging him he had been falsely accused of some awful crime some nameless unspeakable offence hateful as the gates of hell he was innocent but his enemies were legion and at any moment a detective might be sent to whipperfield to arrest him one evening in the summer twilight after dinner he took it into his head that one of the footmen a man whose face ought to have been thoroughly familiar to him was a detective in disguise he flew at this worthy young fellow in a furious rage and the butler had hard work to prevent his doing poor john thomas a mischief but when the lamps were brought in brian perceived his mistake and apologized to the footman for his violence you don't know what devils those detectives are he said deprecatingly they can make themselves look like anybody and if they once get hold of me the case will be tried at westminster hall it will take weeks to try and all the bar will be engaged and then it will have to go to the house of lords there has not been such a case within the last century all europe will ring with it dear brian i am sure this is a delusion of yours said ida trying to soothe him you cannot have done anything so wicked done no i am as innocent as a baby but the whole bar the bench too is in league against me they'll make out their case depend upon it it's a case for a jury that's what the lord chancellor said when i told him about it after this there could be no doubt that there was actual mental disturbance lady palliser sent for the local medical man who had very little difficulty in diagnosing the case sleeplessness restless nights tossing from side to side an utter inability to keep still horrible dreams impaired vision clouds floating before his eyes these symptoms mr fosbroke heard from the wife the patient himself was obstinately silent about his sensations declared that there was nothing the matter with him and let the doctor know he considered his visit an impertinent intrusion i had a touch of brain fever early in the year he said i had the best advice in london during my illness and afterwards i know exactly how to treat myself the symptoms which alarm my wife are nothing but the natural reaction after a severe shock to the nervous system the tonics i am taking will soon pull me up again but as i am now under a special treatment by dr mallison of harley street you will understand that i don't care about further advice undoubtedly replied the medical man meekly but i believe it would be a satisfaction to lady palliser and to mrs wendover both if you would do me the honour to consult me and allow me to look after you while you are here i could place myself under dr mallison's instructions if you like no there is no necessity i tell you i know exactly what is amiss and how to manage my own health 
Mr. Fosbroke argued the point, but in vain. Brian would not even allow him to feel his pulse. But the doctor knew very well what was amiss, and told Mrs. Wendover, with delicate circumlocution, that her husband was suffering from an imprudent use of stimulants for some time past. "'That's what I feared,' said Ida. "'But it is too dreadful. It is the very last thing I expected. I thought nobody drank nowadays.' "'Very few people get drunk, my dear Mrs. Wendover,' replied the doctor. "'But unhappily, though there is very little drunkenness, there is a great deal of what is called pegging, an intermittent kind of tippling which goes on all day long, beginning very early and ending very late. A man whose occupation in life is headwork begins to think he wants a stimulant, begins by having his brandy and soda at twelve o'clock, perhaps, then finds he can't get on without it after eleven, then takes it before breakfast, in lieu of breakfast, and goes on with brandy and soda at intervals till dinner-time. At dinner he has no appetite, tries to create one with a bottle of dry champagne, eats very little, but dines on the champagne, feels an unaccountable depression of spirits later on in the evening, and takes more brandy, without soda this time, and so on, and so on, till after a period of sleeplessness he begins to have ugly dreams, then to see waking visions, hear imaginary voices, stumble upon the edge of an imaginary precipice. If he is an elderly man he gets shaky in the lower limbs, then his hands become habitually tremulous, especially in the early morning, when he is like a figure hung on wires, and so on and so on. And unless he pulls himself up by a great moral effort, the chances are that he will have a sharp attack of delirium tremens. You do not fear such an attack for my husband. Mr. Wendover is a young man, but he has evidently abused his constitution. There is no knowing what may happen if you don't take care of him. Alcohol is a cumulative poison, and that pegging I have told you of is diabolical. Nature throws off an overdose of alcohol, but the daily, hourly dose eats into the system. How am I to take care of him? asked Ida despairingly. You must keep wine and spirits away from him, except in extreme moderation. What? Speak to the butler, tell him that my husband is a drunkard? You need not go quite so far as that, but it will be necessary to cut off the supplies somehow, and to substitute a nourishing diet for stimulants. Yes, if he could eat. But he has no appetite. He eats hardly anything. Unhappily, that is one of the symptoms of his disease and the most difficult to overcome. But you must do your utmost to make him eat, and to prevent his getting brandy. A little light claret or Rhine wine may be allowed, nothing more. I will send you a sedative which you can give him at bedtime. I do not think he will take anything of that kind. He has set his face against accepting your advice. I believe if you were to take a decided tone, he would succumb. If not, you had better ask Dr. Mallison to come down and see him. It will be a costly visit, and money thrown away, as the case is perfectly simple. But I dare say you will not mind that. I should mind nothing if he could be cured. It is horrible to see such ruin of body and mind in one so young, Ida answered sadly. Well, you must see what influence you can exercise over him for his own good. I will call every other day and hear how you are getting on with him. And if you fail, we must summon Dr. Mallison. 
Ida spoke to the butler. It was a hard thing to do, and it seemed to her a kind of treachery against her husband, as if she were inflicting everlasting disgrace upon him in secret, like a midnight assassin who stabs his victim in the back. Her voice trembled, and her face was deadly pale as she spoke to the butler, an old servant who had been in the household from his boyhood. "'Rogers, I want you to be a little more careful in your arrangements about wine and spirits,' she began, falteringly. "'Mr. Wendover is in a low state of health, suffering from a nervous complaint, in fact, and we fear that he is taking too much brandy. Will you kindly try to prevent it?' "'It will be very difficult, ma'am. Mr. Wendover gives his orders, and he expects to be obeyed.' "'But upon this one point you must not obey him. You can say that you have Lady Palliser's orders that no more brandy is to be brought up from the cellar. I shall tell her that I have told you this.' "'Yes, ma'am. I was afraid too much brandy was being drunk, but it was not my place to mention it,' said Rogers, politely. He would have said the same, perhaps, had the house been on fire. Neither sherry nor champagne was served at dinner that day, and the claret which was offered Mr. Wendover was of a very thin quality. "'I'll take champagne,' he said to the butler. "'There is not any upstairs, sir.' Brian turned angrily upon the man, and Ida, pale but resolute, came to the rescue. "'We do not drink champagne at dinner when we are alone, Brian,' she said. "'And I don't think it is quite fair to Vernie Sellers that Moet should be served every day because you are here.' "'Vernon Sellers! Ah, I forgot. We are all here on sufferance, and that I am drinking Vernon's wine.' "'You may have as much of my champagne as you like,' said Vernie, getting very red. "'But I don't think it does you any good, for you are always so cross afterwards.' Brian looked at the boy with a savage gleam in his eyes, and muttered something, but made no audible reply. "'I'll go back to my chambers tomorrow,' he said. "'I can have a bottle of Moet there without being under an obligation to anybody. "'Give me some brandy and soda,' he said to the butler. "'I can't drink this verjuice.' "'There is no brandy, sir.' "'Oh, Sir Vernon's cognac is to be kept sacred, too. "'I congratulate you, Vernon, upon having two such economical guardians. "'Your minority will be a period of considerable saving.' "'He made no further remonstrance, drank neither claret nor hock, "'ate hardly anything, but sat through the dinner in sullen silence "'and went off to his room directly Lady Palliser had said grace, "'leaving the others to take their strawberries and cream alone.' Vernon was what Rogers the butler called a mark on strawberries and cream. When Vernie had finished his strawberries, Ida went to her husband's study, but the door was locked, and when she asked to be admitted, Brian refused. "'I'd rather be alone, thank you,' he answered curtly. "'I have an article to write for one of the legal papers. You can amuse yourself with the baronet. I know you are always glad to be free.' "'Come for a stroll in the park, Brian,' she pleaded gently pitying him with all her heart, more tenderly inclined to him in his decay and degradation than she had been in his prime of manhood before these fatal habits began. Do come with us, dear. We won't walk farther than you like. It's a lovely evening. I hate a summer twilight, returned Brian. It always gives me the horrors, a creepy time, when all sorts of loathsome creatures are abroad. 
bats and owls and stag beetles, cockchafers and other abominations. Can't you leave me alone? he went on angrily. I tell you I have work to do. Ida left him upon this without a word. What was she to do? This was her first experience of a mind diseased, and it seemed to her worse than any trouble that had ever touched her before. She had stood beside her father's deathbed, and the hair of her flesh had stood up at the awful moment of dissolution, when it was as if verily a spirit had passed before her face, calling her beloved from the known to the unknown. Yet in the awe and horror of death there had been holiness and comfort, a whisper of hope leading her thoughts to higher regions, a promise that this pitiful, inexplicable parting was not the end. This dissolution in the living man, this palpable progress of degradation, visible day by day and hour by hour, was worse than death. It meant the decay of a mind, the wreck of an immortal soul. What place could there be in heaven for the drunkard, who had dribbled away his reason, his power to discriminate between right and wrong, by perpetual doses of brandy? What could be pleaded in extenuation of this gradual and deliberate suicide? Ida went slowly downstairs, her soul steeped in gloom, seeing no ray of light on the horizon, for with the most earnest desire to save her erring husband, she felt herself powerless to help him against himself. If he were denied the things he cared for at Wimperfield, there was little doubt that he would go back to his solitary chambers, where he was his own master. He was not so ill either in mind or body as to justify her in using actual restraint. At the moment she thought of telegraphing for Aunt Betsy, whose firm, manly mind might offer valuable aid in such a crisis, but she shrank from the idea of exposing her husband's degradation even to his aunt. She did not want the family at Kingthorpe to know how low he had fallen. Mr. and Mrs. Jardine had been impressed by the change in him, and Bessie had harped upon his lost good looks, habitual irritability, and deteriorated manners. But neither had hinted at an inkling of the cause, and Ida hoped the hideous truth had been unsuspected by either. She decided, therefore, during those few minutes of meditation which she spent in the portico waiting for Vernon, that she would rely on her own intelligence, and upon professional aid rather than upon any family intervention. If she could not, by her own strong hand, with the help of the London physician, lead her husband's footsteps out of this tophet into which he had sunk himself, she would spare no trouble, withhold no sacrifice to effect his rescue, and she and her stepmother, the kindliness of women, would keep the secret between them. Vernon came bounding out of the hall, eager for the accustomed evening ramble. This evening walk with the boy had been Ida's happiest time of late, perhaps the only portion of her day in which she enjoyed the sense of freedom from ever-present anxiety, in which she had put away troubled thought. She had gone back to her duty meekly and resignedly, when this time of respite was over, but with a sense of unspeakable woe. Wimperfield, with its lighted windows, stone walls, and classical portico, had seemed to her only as a prison-house, a whited sepulchre, fair without and loathsome within. Vernie was full of curiosity about that little scene at the dinner-table. The boy had that quick perception of the minds and acts of others which is generally developed in a child who spends the greater part of his life with grown-up people. 
and he had been quite as conscious as his elders of the unpleasantness of the scene. "'I hope Brian doesn't think I'm stingy about the wine,' he said. "'He might drink it all for anything I should care. I don't want it.' "'I know, darling, but you were quite right in what you said at dinner. The wine does Brian harm, and that's why Mamma and I don't want him to take any.' "'Has it always done him harm?' asked Vernon. "'Always, that is, lately.' Then why did you let him take so much, a whole bottle, sometimes two bottles, all to himself at dinner? I heard Rogers tell Mrs. Moggs about it. Rogers ought not to have given him so much. Oh, but Rogers said it wasn't his place to make remarks, only he was very sorry for poor Mrs. Wendover. That's you, you know, not Mrs. Wendover at Kingthorpe. Oh, Vernie, you were not listening. Of course not. I wasn't listening on purpose. But I was in the lobby outside the housekeeper's room, waiting for some grease for my shooting boots. I always grease them myself, you know, for nobody else does it properly. And Rogers said the brandy Mr. Wendover had drunk in three weeks would make Mrs. Mogg's hair stand on end. But it couldn't, could it? When she wears a front, a front couldn't stand on end, said Vernon, exploding at his own little joke, which, like most of the witticisms of childhood, was founded on the physical deficiencies of age. "'Look, Vernie, there is going to be a lovely sunset,' said Ida, anxious to change the conversation. But Vernon's inquiring mind was not satisfied. "'Is it wicked to drink champagne and brandy?' he asked. "'Yes, dear, it is wicked to take anything which we know will do us harm. It would be wicked to take poison, and brandy is a kind of poison.' "'Except for poor people when they are ill.' They always come to the vicarage for brandy when they are ill, and Mr. Jardine gives them a little. Brandy is a medicine sometimes, but it is a poison if anyone takes too much of it, a poison that ruins body and soul. I hope Brian will not take any more, but we mustn't talk about it, darling, above all, to strangers. No, I shouldn't talk of it to anyone but you, because I like Brian. He used to go fishing with me, and to be so good-natured, and to tell me funny stories and do imitations of actors for me. But now he's so cross. Is that the brandy? I'm afraid it is. Then I hate brandy. They were in the park by this time, wandering in the wildest part of the ground, where the bracken grew breast-high in great sweeps of feathery green. They came to a spot on the edge of a hill where three or four noble old elms had been felled, and where a couple of men in smock-frocks were sawing coffin-boards. "'What are those broad planks wanted for?' the boy asked. "'And why do you make them so short?' "'They're not uncommon short, Sir Vernon,' the man answered, touching his hat. "'The shortest on em is six foot. Them be for coffins, Sir Vernon.' "'How horrid! I hope they won't be wanted for ages,' said the boy. "'Not much chance o' that, sir. There's allus summon a wantin' a whisket o' this make,' answered the man with a grin, as Vernon and Ida went on uncomfortably impressed by the idea of those two men sawing their coffin-boards in the calm, bright evening, with every articulation of the branching fern standing sharply out against the yellow light, as on the margin of a golden sea. They rambled on, and presently Ida was repeating passages from those Shakespearean plays which had formed Vernon's first introduction to English history, and of which he had never tired. Ida knew all the great speeches, and indeed a good many of the more famous scenes by heart, and Vernon liked to hear them over and over again, alternately detesting 
the Lancastrians and pitying the Yorkists, or hating York and compassionating Lancaster as the fortunes of war wavered. And then there was Richard II, more tenderly touched by Shakespeare than by Hume or Hallam, and Richard III, whose iniquities were made respectable by a kind of diabolical thoroughness, and that feebler villain John. Vernon was as familiar with them as if they had been flesh and blood acquaintances. Cheap Jack knows Shakespeare as well as you do, said Vernon presently, when they had left the park by a wooden gate that opened into a patch of common land which lay between the Wimperfield fence and Black Man's hangar. Who is Cheap Jack? asked Ida absently. The man you saw the night I came home, when Mr. Jardine was with us, don't you remember? The man in the cart, the showman. Yes, I know, but I did not see him. No, he hates the gentry, and women too, I think. But he likes Shakespeare. I shouldn't have thought he would have known anything about Shakespeare. Oh, but he does. Better than you, even. When he was mending my fishing rod, you remember, don't you? I told you how clever he was at fishing rods. Yes, I remember. It was the day you were out so long, quite alone, and I was dreadfully frightened about you. Oh, but that was silly. Besides, I wasn't alone. I was with Jack all day. And if I had been alone, I can take care of myself. I shall be twelve next birthday. Nobody would try to steal me now, said Vernon, drawing himself up and swaggering a little. What, not even good Mrs. Brown? Well, no, I think you are too clever to be stolen. Still, you must not go out again without Robert. Robert was a youth of two-and-twenty, Sir Vernon's bodyguard and particular attendant, to whom the little baronet occasionally gave the go-by. Besides, I don't think you ought to associate with such a person as this cheap Jack, a vagabond stroller, whose past life nobody knows. Oh, but you don't know what kind of man Jack is. He's the cleverest man I ever knew. Cleverer than Mr. Jardine. He knows everything. Let's go up on the hangar. No, dear, it's getting late. We must go home. No, we needn't go home till we like. Nobody wants us. Mamma will be asleep over her knitting. How does she sleep? And she'll wake up surprised when we go home and say, Gracious, is it ten o'clock? These summer evenings are so short. But you ought to be in bed, Bernie. No, I oughtn't. The thrushes haven't gone to bed yet. Hark at that one singing his evening hymn. Do come just a wee bit further. They were at the foot of the hangar by this time, and now began to climb the slope. The atmosphere was balmy with the breath of the pines, and there was an almost tropical warmth in the wood. Languorous, inviting to repose. The crescent moon hung pale above the tops of the trees, pale above that rosy flush of evening which filled the western sky. "'What makes you think, Jack, so clever?' inquired Ida, more for the sake of sustaining the conversation than from any personal interest in the subject. "'Oh, because he knows everything. He told me all about Macbeth, the witches, don't you know, and the ghost, and Mrs—no, Lady Macbeth, walking in her sleep, and then he made my flesh creep worse than you do when you talk about ghosts, and then he told me about Agamemnon, the same that's in Homer. I haven't begun Greek yet, but Mr. Jardine told me about him, and Cly—Cly—what's her name? His wife. And then he told me about Africa and the black men, and about India and tiger hunts and snakes, and the great mountains where there are tribes of wild monkeys. I should so like to have a monkey, Ida. Can I have a monkey? And he told me about South America, just as if he had been there and seen it all. 
He must be a genius,' said Ida, smiling. "'Can I have a monkey?' "'If your mother doesn't object, and if we can get a nice one that won't bite you.' "'Oh, he wouldn't bite. I should be friends with him directly. When I am grown up I shall shoot tigers.' "'I shall not like Mr. Cheap Jack if he puts such ideas into your head.' "'Oh, but you must like him, Ida, for I mean to have him always for my friend, and when I come of age I shall go to the Rockies with him and shoot moose and things.' "'Oh, you unkind boy! Is that all the happiness I am to have when you are grown up? You can come, too. What, go about America with a cheap jack? What a dreadful fate for me! He is not dreadful. He is a splendid fellow. But if he hates women, he would make himself disagreeable. Not to you. He would like you. I talked to him about you once, and he listened, and he seemed so pleased, and made me tell him a lot more. Impertinent curiosity! said Ida, with a vexed air. "'You are a very silly boy to talk about your relations to a man of that class.' "'He is not a man of that class,' retorted Vernon angrily. "'Besides, I didn't talk about my relations, as you call it. I only talked about you. When I told him about Mama, he didn't seem to listen. I could see that by his eyes, you know. But he made me go on talking about you, and asked me all kinds of questions.' "'He is a very impertinent person.' "'Hush!' "'There he is, smoking outside his cottage,' cried the boy, pointing to a figure sitting on a rude bench in front of that hovel which had once sheltered Lord Pontifex's underkeeper. Ida saw a tall, broad-shouldered figure with a tawny face and a long brown beard. The face was half-hidden under a slouch-felt hat. The figure was clad in clumsy corduroy. Ida was just near enough to see that the outline of the face was good when the man rose and went into his hut, shutting the door behind him. "'Discourteous, to say the least of it,' she exclaimed, laughing at Vernon's disconcerted look. "'I'll make him open his door,' said the boy, running towards the cottage. But Ida ran after him and stopped him midway. "'Don't, my pet,' she said. "'Every man's house is his castle, even cheap jacks. Besides, I have really no wish to make your friend's acquaintance. "'Oh, Vernie,' looking at her watch, "'it's a quarter past nine. We must go home as fast as ever we can. He is a nasty, disagreeable thing, said Vernon. I do so want you to see the inside of his cottage. He has no end of books, and the handsomest fox terrier you ever saw, and such a lot of pipes and black bearskins to put over his bed at night. Such a jolly, comfortable little den. I shall have one just like it in the park when I come of age. You talk of doing so many things when you come of age. Yes, and I mean to do them, every one, unless you and mother let me do them sooner. It's a dreadful long time to wait till I'm twenty-one. I don't think we are tyrants, or that we shall refuse you anything reasonable. Not a cottage in the park? No, not even a cottage in the park. End of Part 1 of Chapter 25